I don't think we should see each other again. You're not yourself, darling. Yes, I am. For the first time in ages, I know what I'm doing. Very well. I hope you'll never regret what promises to be a disgustingly earthy relationship. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Wong. And I am Cole Rowlane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 130 today, and that is back to Erica's choice. What are we discussing today? Well, we are really sad that we're missing the annual Noir City Austin Film Festival, and I'm particularly sad that we are missing out on seeing our favorite czar of noir, Mr. Eddie Muller. Yeah, Noir City Austin, that festival each May is one of the things that we look forward to most every year, but things currently being what they are, For matters of public health and safety, it's postponed for now. But May will still be all things noir at the Magic Lantern. And in the meantime, yes, we definitely send our warmest regards to our pal Eddie and Darl and Anne and everyone else at the Film Noir Foundation. We hope to see you all soon, and we can't wait for what treats that you're going to bring us once the show can get back on the road. So sticking with some of our noir favorites this month, I chose Laura from 1944. Directed by Otto Preminger, based on the novel of the same name that ran in Collier's Magazine in 1942 by Vera Caspari. It stars Jean Tierney, Dana Andrews, Clifton Webb, Vincent Price, and Judith Anderson. About the investigation of the murder of a high society advertising executive who is killed by a shotgun blast to the face just inside the door of her home. My mom introduced this film to me when I was in my teens, and I was instantly drawn into its spell, and I've watched it many, many times since then. Do you remember first seeing it? I don't remember specifically. I'm guessing it had to be Turner Classic is where I first discovered this a long time ago, too, probably when I was in my late teens, maybe just before I left home for college, and I've since probably seen it a half a dozen times as well. And then you gave me the Women Crime Writers of the 40s and 50s book set a couple of Christmases ago, and I finally got to read the source novel. And Laura was, I think, really my first big noir film, and I have not been the same since. So are you ready to head uptown and meet Laura? Oh yeah, let's do it. And when you say uptown, that is definitely what this is all about. This is big budget noir. It really does get that uptown treatment. I think which especially suits the story. This will contrast a fair amount with my choice. I'm doing the narrow margin for my noir choice next episode. So between us, we're going to cover a good bit of ground going from one end of the noir spectrum to the other. Now, when I look at the films that are traditionally thought of as the noir canon, this one is the odd one out to me. It often sits firmly ensconced in perennial top 10 noir lists with things like Out of the Past, Double Indemnity, and The Asphalt Jungle. You look at the pantheon of noir, and you usually have films that are more down and dirty than this, at least on the surface. They're populated with two-bit hoods. They don't take place in the most glamorous of settings often. 
But not this. This is an A picture traversing B territory, I think. It's dreamier than noir is typically, too. It embodies a really strange contradiction, I think. It is the least traditional noir of those that you find on those all-time lists, while being the most traditional movie at the same time, in the sense of its appeal to a general audience, I think. It courts an audience that's more in it for the glamour than maybe for the noir tropes that we know and love. I can't recall a setting in it that isn't intended to convey sophistication, can you? Definitely, everything is gorgeous everywhere you look. In some of those other films, you might encounter that a little bit if we ever go to meet some kingpin or the person that's the money behind the scheme, but I really like the grubbier side of noir that we see more often. Flop houses. More armored car robbery yeah. than high society. Exactly. Hideouts that are just this side of condemned. Dockside bars, locker rooms, and boxing gyms. That is where noir typically lives in my heart. Does this difference, though, this uptown setting, affect the way that you approach this film? Is it just telling us that there's rot in every strata of society? Or do you read it as saying something particular damning about these characters? How do you feel about it? So even though we are uptown in all capital letters, and it's this significant departure from those dark city settings that we're used to, there's even though a nude scene right away, which is kind of funny, we're sort of laughing at ourselves because it takes place between Waldo Lidecker and Mark McPherson, played by Diana Andrews, who is investigating Laura's murder. And the murder itself is pretty grimy. She took a shotgun blast to the face and it was loaded with buckshot, we're told. I mean, yikes. Would it be better somehow if it was birdshot? <laughs> It's, it's just that dispersal that I'm thinking of. No, it wouldn't be better on any level, but it's pretty gross. I do have a lot more to say about this later. Okay. Well, we first see Laura, not in person, but in portrait, which is really interesting. And her image dominates the music and the credit sequence. Yeah, let's talk about that theme because it is front and center from the opening titles. And I'm picking up a little hint of Smoke Dreams, maybe, from The Thin Man. <laughs> There's a little bit of that melody there, which always makes me smile. But the story behind this song is so interesting, I think. Priminger wanted a Duke Ellington tune for this, which is hard to argue with, obviously. But the composer, David Raskin, he didn't think Sophisticated Lady fit the bill exactly. I think he turned out to be right, and that's with Preminger being one of the few directors from that period whose musical instincts I would typically trust as much as their filmmaking instincts. I think he had a really good ear for those sorts of things. I think he really enjoyed music on a personal level, it seemed like. It seems like in Anatomy of a Murder, you can really see that instinct. Yeah, that's exactly the example that I was going to go to. He used Ellington for that, and that turned out pretty good. There's even diegetic music performed in it that really makes the film come alive in those sections. Well, I specifically for this viewing decided before watching that I was going to try to pay more attention to the music and how the music is employed throughout because that's something that I never really concentrated on before and I have seen it so many times I thought this will be the new thing that I'm watching out for. How does it feel, the Laura theme, the way it's deployed, compared to, say, the way the Maisie theme is deployed in those movies? It's a little similar. It reminds me a bit more of kind of the Stella by Starlight mm. feeling from The Uninvited. And it's really effective after that theme even dies away with the clock chimes coming in. And that is a significant piece of sound, though we don't know it at the time. 
Yeah, before we move on to the clock, I want to talk a little bit more about this music. So Raskin shot down Priminger's idea, so Priminger says to him, okay, Hotshot, you've got a weekend to come up with something. And this is what he came up with. It also turns out that this was the same weekend that Raskin's wife sent him a Dear John letter. So sometimes inspiration can be a real drag when you're trying to come up with a haunted melody. It's since become a standard in its own right. Duke Ellington himself even recorded a version of it in 1956, and it really is one of the most iconic and instantly recognizable themes in the history of cinema. During Raskin's lifetime, it was said that it was the second most recorded song in history, which is not bad for the first major film scoring assignment he ever had. Well, speaking of other sound here, we first have another character telling us about Laura, my favorite character in the story, probably yours too, Waldo Lidecker, gossip columnist and noted wit, who in narration tells us that he was the only one who really knew her. And it's Clifton Webb's dulcet tones over this narration. This really is a super fun way to kick this off. You already mentioned our erstwhile detective meets him when Waldo is first in the tub, where he does a lot of his work. I see you recognized me, he says. <laughs> and there is a sly glance. You do notice that Dana Andrews surreptitiously takes a peek at him while it's implied that he's naked off screen. It seems like there's a bit of a smirk there yeah, as well. There is wry amusement. You can interpret that however you like. But it's a great exchange to kick things off, and it really sets the tone for everything that follows. I think Clifton Webb is just pitch perfect in this role. Immediately, I was thinking, did Waldo have a real-life analog? And I was going through all the obvious options. Walter Winchell, I thought, but that doesn't seem right. He's not as a feat. He's too much the tough guy. Yeah, I thought Walter Winchell forever, but he does seem much grubbier and not high-class. But it turns out that it was really more modeled on Alexander Walcott, which now makes perfect sense. Yeah, you could take the character right out of this and slide him right into the man who came to dinner. and It would be a perfect fit. You wouldn't miss a beat. Except for maybe the murder. <laughs> well, Waldo right away attaches himself to the investigation, which is pretty unorthodox, I would assume. And he accompanies McPherson to visit the other suspects. It is really kind of a novel beginning, I think, because the voice providing the narrative is neither the dead woman or the dogged detective, which is what we usually get. Typically, in the case of the victim, that's framed as her voice from beyond the grave, urging the assembled towards the solution of her murder. We learn about halfway through, though, that that's not applicable in this case, so it kind of turns that on its head. It takes this unconventional tack, like you say, of having one of the main suspects act as narrator. When you first saw this, did that tip its hand for you? Can you remember your first viewing if that raised any red flags? It really did not. Now, we're going way back in time here, but I remember being super surprised at the end and then realizing after the fact, hey, this is kind of my first introduction to the unreliable narrator concept. Yeah, I think I felt the same. I am pretty sure it didn't expose too much for me along the way, since it still plays just fine when I watch it now. This film is so well constructed that it doesn't telegraph anything too much for me, with maybe one exception, which we'll get to in a little bit. And while we are on the topic of Waldo Lidecker, while we're still talking about how this character is introduced, what is the equivalent of a columnist like this now? There isn't anyone that has this kind of make-or-break power anymore, right? 
It certainly doesn't seem like it. There are things like page six or TMZ, but they're often crowdsourced, if mm. anything, and it's all happening in the moment. There are certainly influencers these days, but it does not feel like the same thing. There certainly isn't this stereotype of the savage wit, bon vivant type that Waldo Lidecker is. It really is a lost art, I feel like. I wouldn't consider Perez Hilton, for instance, even in the same area code as what's going on here. And you can't imagine anyone spoken in the same vein as the foremost authority on basically any subject, like Waldo is on crime. Yeah, I really can't think of any contemporary analogs. Michael Musto isn't even writing a column anymore. Liz Smith has been dead for a couple of years now. And I think that's something that you just referred to with the crowdsourcing, the way that social media is, I don't know that this could exist the same way ever again. It just can't be the same anymore. Also, while we are talking about this initial exchange, can we please give some love to the sash weight which was such a common device as to be considered an ordinary weapon to commit murder back then. It's mentioned in Rope as well. I feel a little bit sad that the sash weight is really past its prime, as blunt force trauma objects go. <laughs> Are you trying to bring it back? A revival? Yeah. Hashtag sash weight 2020. Because it can't get any worse at this point. Yeah, we've got murder it? hornets now even, so what's a <laughs> few sash true. weights added to the mix? <laughs> I want to keep talking about Clifton Webb for a minute here. Now, he was 54 at the time. He hadn't been on screen for more than a decade. And he talked about that shock of seeing himself for the first time. And he said, it made me realize that I was no longer a dashing young juvenile, which I must have fancied myself being through the years in theater. And I felt like I might vomit. He's such a diva. <laughs> he is. I don't think he had anything to worry about. Now, he was known at the time as a homosexual, though, of course, we're still during the code. Yeah, let's say fairly open, not completely out. I guess what might be still called at the time a confirmed bachelor, mm -hmm. because he lived with his mother until her death. Otto Priminger definitely wanted him for this role and pushed for him. And at this point, I can't imagine anyone else, even though... Monty Woolley, who had played an Alexander Wolcott knockoff, had been proposed to play it. Now, there was another person who was proposed, and that was Laird Kriegar coming off of The Lodger. By the way, did you know John Brom was actually invited to direct the film, too? I think that would have been a great choice, although it wouldn't have been as wonderfully luxurious, probably. Now, the tie turned against Larry Kriegar because the thought was he's already played a bad guy. Is that going to be the thing that tips the movie's hand? How would you have felt about him in general? I want to say first up front, I love Laird Kriegar. He is one of my favorites. His death at a relatively young age is one of the greatest tragedies in classic Hollywood cinema. Yeah, December 1944, by the way. So I love him, but he would not have been right for this at all. He's just too imposing a figure to play that part and not tip its hand a little bit. Talk about telegraphing the ending of this thing. Pay no attention to the fact that our narrator is Jack the Ripper, basically. Right. And also, I think the age difference is a big positive here. I think that tells us much more about the characters. Well, let's get back to the action, though, first. And we're about to meet some other characters. Their casting is also quite interesting. We've got Anne Treadwell, who was Laura's aunt, played by Judith Anderson of Rebecca fame, our very first episode. And she had also had great success on stage playing Medea. 
and we're building a sense of who everyone is as McPherson tosses these provocative questions their way. Anne definitely doesn't seem like a close relative of Laura's, but a major romantic rival because she's clearly in love with and has given lots of money to Shelby, Laura's fiance, played by Vincent Price, which is also incredibly fun casting. Waldo describes him as a male beauty in distress, <laughs> and basically everyone is being as bitchy as possible. Shelby's basically hiding in the bedroom and comes when he's called. So everybody is circling each other, and this is, I think, a pretty great start to the film, in my opinion, but the production didn't kick off in a great way. Otto Priminger, the director, was the producer, but he was barred from the set initially because the original director, Ruben Mamoulian, couldn't stand to have him around. But apparently, he had shot complete garbage, and all the actors were acting terribly. When you say acting terribly, do you mean giving bad performances or misbehaving? Giving bad performances. Okay. <laughs> Evidently. Because with this crew... You never can tell. It's true. Judith Anderson was sending it to the rafters, evidently. Nobody could understand anything Gene Tierney was doing, on and on. So he was ordered to reshoot everything, but the second batch wasn't any better, so he was fired, and Priminger was allowed to direct and started everything over from scratch. Otto Priminger is kind of hit and miss for me, but I generally like his noirish output. I know it's more of a courtroom procedural, but I love the noirish edges to Anatomy of a Murder. It's also got to be high on your list with Ben Gazzara in it, I would guess. Ben is a good actor. Why didn't he ever get a series? <laughs> That's an old Gilbert Godfrey joke. You can Google that. But I do like Fallen Angel. If there's anyone that I would be more moon-eyed over than Gene Tierney, and that's a short list, it would be Linda Darnell. How are you with Priminger? Because advising consent is probably a high point for me. I know we're both fans of Bunny Lake is missing. Bunny Lake is definitely my favorite. And oddly, I really haven't seen many of his films. I've seen Laura 150 times. I love Bunny Lake. I like Anatomy of a Murder. But really, I was looking through the rest of the list. Haven't gotten around to a lot of it. Have you seen Skidoo? No. You really should. (laughs) That thing is bananas in an acid-drenched Hollywood Wax Museum kind of way. Well, I love Hollywood lore. And so even at the time, I had heard stories about Otto Preminger's reputation as a total autocrat. It was said when he was in a temper, his eyes would bulge out, his veins would pop, and he would do this temper tantrum in public in front of other people and get really, really vicious at whomever his target was. Mm, That's good directing. Yeah, right. (laughs) Evidently, Jean Seberg in St. Joan said she became a nervous wreck. She couldn't walk across a room normally anymore. Lana Turner walked away from Anatomy of a Murder. But evidently, he was in private a very great guy, a loyal friend, loving husband, and father. But specifically to talk about his work, I think here especially we can see his hallmark touches, those long takes, deep focus elegant camera movements and he felt like every cut in editing was an interruption so he cut as infrequently as possible now speaking of the whole uptown downtown difference clifton webb said the film took 10 weeks to make and if you think of something like detour it was made in what an afternoon practically (laughs) so it was an incredibly unusual amount of time and a grueling process but everybody was really delighted with the result 
now we come to Laura's apartment, finally, where we should get some true sense, finally, of who she was, don't you think? We get a little bit of it, I think, just based on the things we see telling us how she was perceived. But I'm still stuck on this idea that McPherson is taking this unconventional step of bringing Waldo, essentially, on this tour of other suspects and crime scenes. One of the things that demonstrates how she was perceived by the general public, you get the impression that this case is drawing a lot of attention from onlookers and media. There's kind of a circus outside her apartment. It's very high profile, this crime, and we get the feeling right away that we are dealing with a social strata that is not typical of noir. There is almost immeasurable privilege here when you start to meet these people. They lie constantly, I suppose, thinking that detectives are just going to take their word for it based on who they are and not unearth the actual facts of the case. There's an enormous amount of, you can't talk to her like that, to the police. Then you have Waldo's insistence later of getting items back from a crime scene that might be considered evidence, including the clock. This is a murder investigation. Who do they think is in charge? What do they think is happening? Well, McPherson seems to think that she's a dame, like every other woman is. Judging by her popular taste in music, maybe she is. We still only see her image, not her. So is she this perfect embodiment of elegant womanhood as Waldo has fashioned her, or a real person? We have no idea yet. And I do want to quickly point out, I'm trying to do this as we go, We've had no music up to this point until they put this record on. It's so interesting. There's no underscoring happening at any point. Well, let's point out how great Vincent Price here is as Shelby and such a departure from the normally horror staples that we think of when we think of him. He's basically a gigolo here. Yes, and he just wants to be helpful. At least that suits the character too, whatever it takes, if you know what I mean. Obsequious seems to be kind of the characterization. I am a huge fan of Vincent Price. He's one of my all-time favorites, specifically because I'm such a fan of the horror genre. But the other things, too. How do you feel about him in non-horror roles? Well, this is still a little bit of a dark film, but I like him a lot in Dragonwick, and that's also with Gene Tierney. I don't think he was ever bad in anything. At least, I can't think of it. And he's great in these types of mysteries, too. I think it's a nice bit of meta-text from his character when he acknowledges that he's a natural-born suspect because he's not the conventional type. There's almost always this undercurrent of camp. There's just a sly nod or wink waiting to happen, it feels like. Or at least the potential for it. And he's such an intelligent and funny and nimble actor, I really don't think he gets enough credit. The music again here transitions into setting mood and moving the story forward as Waldo, at a lunch with McPherson, flashes back to how he met Laura and how basically he made her over like Pygmalion. She's super young, super eager, but willing to stand up to him. And then, at least in his telling, is eager to take his guidance into becoming this sophisticated and fashionable mover and shaker. What characteristics of hers do you think really won him over? What was it that separated her from everyone else to make her this figure of obsession for him? I'm wondering, is it her hero worship of him, the way that she's, though glad to take up his attention? 
Or is it just obsession? Has it just turned into something else that he doesn't want anyone else to play with his doll? Because they clearly don't have a physical relationship. And that physical desire is the thing that starts to strain their relationship when she starts to seek out companionship and romance in younger, more handsome and straight men. I think also her lack of guile initially is what captivates his attention and then her acute analysis of him. She's obviously paying attention to him, which is what he loves above everything else. That's what gets his attention the most. And he claims that she held him in high regard. Did she misjudge him? Is that even true? I wonder, I'm again thinking about the unreliable narrator. How much can we truly believe of this? Because then when Shelby enters the picture, we have this lopsided triangle. And I'm thinking about something that the writer Vera Kaspari talked about that she suggested in thinking of her desire for Shelby specifically, that women have this motherly desire to take care of someone. To be honest, I kind of call bunk on all of it. I can't really relate to any part of it. I think our unreliable narrator gives away a little bit more of himself than he realizes right here, though. He implies that she was always meant for something greater, but the thing he specifically says, the way she listened was more eloquent than speech. Though the way he means it is not necessarily the compliment he thinks it is. And how much of this, well, maybe this is our viewing, is coded by this idea of him being able to express himself? through another person in a way that he couldn't. You also can't argue with the fact that Jean Tierney is stunning. Physically beautiful. Absolutely. So I'll give them that. So because of that, just another aspect, we cannot escape her image. She's introduced to us as this portrait, then as a dead woman. Structurally, it's really interesting for noir, the way it's set up with this flashback sequence and the victim coming back in the middle, and the fact that we don't have a traditional femme fatale. Is it possible for the central female character to lead our detective into danger if she's only an idealized portrait? I mean, talk about acid flashback stuff, this sort of dreamy world that we're inhabiting. What is real and what is not? They do an exceptional job of conveying the sense of that portrait exuding some sort of siren song, most definitely. We're going to get yet another opinion about who Laura really was, this time from her maid, Bessie, who thought she was a real fine lady. Though it definitely reads to me like a servant-master sort of a relationship in which Bessie would be happy to kiss her ring. I like that character a lot more when she's talking about spitting on cops. <laughs> do you think like I do that Bessie might have been better if it was played by Thelma Ritter? 100%, but you could say that of a whole lot of characters. That's true. And maybe it wouldn't have worked, actually, because she might have been too no-nonsense for that part. She wouldn't have been so flaky or flighty or scared. But she's even in on this whole privilege thing because she removes evidence. She staged the scene. This is a very big deal, but not in this film. Well, no one is ever on their best behavior, we figure out as we go along. Waldo, he is completely obsessive and petty all the time. Among other things, he rightfully maybe exposes Shelby's infidelity to Laura, but I don't feel like that's going to gain him anything, so why does he do it? Does it even matter to him? The most interesting thing for me that Waldo's behavior does with all of this is illuminate similar qualities in Laura herself. When he writes that mocking column about the artist, 
Laura is not above getting a chuckle out of that at the artist's expense. We see her ambition, her pettiness, her vanity. As she reads this column, handles problems at work, primps for this party all in quick succession, it feels like. So maybe this sequence is the first clue that Waldo's beatific recollections of her can't exactly be trusted. We see things in her behavior that undermines that. So taking all of that into consideration, what is the exchange, do you feel like, in Waldo and Laura's relationship? What's the power dynamic here? What's the exchange worth to her in any of these relationships? I don't know how much of it is him being so frightened of not having the upper hand because he would always have the upper hand in all of his relationships, having to break others down to their most vulnerable point, so then he is the one, the only one that she can rely on. I do think there's a huge difference here. He never claimed she was a saint, or that she was a great human being. It's all about elegance, and again, artifice to me. Well, going in a slightly different direction then, my instinct, especially with the speed with which she moves with McPherson, is that maybe she's just not good at this. But it also seems like she doesn't even care on some level. Are these bad decisions with men, or does sometimes a girl just need a disgustingly earthy relationship? I think she was 24. She was a career person, and I admire that in her. And I think at the same time, the movie is telling us something pretty cynical, pretty noirish, about how we want to be loved or what we fall in love with. Images. We are staged, managed to do that. The camera lens is telling us who to fall in love with. It is all a facade. And I think this telling of Laura is pretty modern and probably more accurate because she's looking for physical stimulation. She's almost playing the man's role here. She just wants to get laid, and all the men are preventing her from doing this and becoming the spurned and jealous ones. And one of them murdered her because he couldn't have her. It's a nightmare, basically. She's not a femme fatale, and she gets frustrated when other people try to force her into that box. Talking about these suitors and how she's managing them, I do like this idea how, with just a slight change in tack, this could be something completely different. There is something of the screwball or the romantic comedy in the roots of this story, too, but that quickly, obviously, becomes perverse and dark, like you say. In the screwball tradition, when you have the beautiful girl juggling three suitors, it usually culminates in something like her breathlessly swirling from table to table to table in some swanky club, so her gentleman callers don't accidentally all meet each other, not with her doppelganger getting blasted in the face with a shotgun. Well, speaking of creepy, this level of creepiness didn't really occur to me when I was 12, and that's <laughs> that Mark McPherson stays behind in her apartment, doesn't go to the station, in her apartment, touching her things, her clothing, smelling things, reading her letters in her diary. This sequence and the others like it, they really remind me just how much this is marvelously busy and full of rich detail in the restaurants, in the advertising agencies, in these well-appointed apartments. You have all these objects in the foreground. From the moment you press play on this, the camera is prowling around these sumptuous interiors, picking up on things like the clock. I really love how fleshed out these settings are. And while we're on the subject of this creep, how do you feel about 
Dana Andrews as a noir leading man. How does he measure up against your Bogarts, your Mitchums, John Garfield, Alan Ladd, Lantern favorite Charles McGraw, for instance? I mentioned I didn't get the creepy radar going off. I was in love with him from the word go. And part of that is that he verbalizes what it is that he feels. He's so much more passionate in a way that you don't see the others being. Maybe again, I think we've talked about this in other episodes, the first thing you see often becomes your favorite. So I had more of him before I had those other guys. That makes sense. I obviously didn't have a similar reaction that you did, but he is definitely relatable for me. I put him in there with those guys that I really like, like Robert Ryan, for instance. There's so many great ones. John Payne is another favorite of mine that I kind of have on that same level. I can tell you where I rank him with respect to Dick Powell, if you want to talk about that. <laughs> we all know your Dick Powell beef. <laughs> but I think he really nails that just smarter than average thing. He's perceptive enough when he needs to pick up a crucial clue now and then, but he's not so perceptive that a dame can't play him for a sucker when the story warrants it. And his physicality is all used for romance. If you call digging through the underwear drawer romance. Right. But moving on. So even with the detective, we have this pattern established of people coming back and doing things to the scene of the crime. And the ultimate example of that is Laura herself returning and depriving them of their victim, essentially, or more accurately, exchanging victims, because there's still now the question of the dead girl with no face. How shocking do you think her return was to the audience in 1944? It sure was to me. Because they spent a long time convincing us that she was dead. Half the movie, in fact. I guess it had to surprise everybody who didn't read it in Collier's magazine. Do you feel the same way about it in that when she walks in that first time, it has this air that there's a suggestion that he might even be dreaming this when she comes back? He even does that old school rubbing his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Throw away his flask of whiskey. <laughs> yeah. The thing I like most about that scene, I think, is that her surprise is equal to his, finding him in her house that way. Which leads me to the next question. Do you believe her that she is ignorant of all of these things that have happened? I think I certainly did when I first saw it. And then I think the film plays with that a little bit, which is really well done. Yeah, there's the section where he checks out her timeline and her alibi, and it's a little shaky. Oh, yeah. Now I remember why I was out when the cops came by. It's definitely a lot of trust but verify. Now this is a major shift, obviously, for the audience to follow from dead victim to live suspect. We've seen this movie so many times now, but when she walks back in that door, I think it retains some of that same thrill even now, which is a testament to its construction and its execution. And I think the music cue is, re is done really well here. There aren't a huge number of films that can pull that off for me when I really think about it. I think Psycho is probably the heavyweight champion of that, of eliciting that same hair-on-my-arm standing-up reaction. And when I go back to what I think about my initial instinct regarding her guilt or her innocence, it was a shock that she was alive, but I don't think that I ever thought she was a murderer. Because dripping wet in her casual hat and her trench coat, she looks better than 100,000 other people walking around. By casual hat, do you mean her Dutch milkmaid outfit? That she <laughs> I wears love with that, that hat, though. I love that hat. So Mark has been falling in love with a corpse, in Waldo's estimation. So can he now make his dream love a reality? Or is Laura going to stick with Shelby? Well, let's talk for a second about Waldo's estimation of all that. 
are we starting to become more suspicious of him as our narrator and potential suspect here because he certainly just happens to be, quote, in the neighborhood a whole lot. He does pull a neat trick here, though, to keep us off balance that I love. He calls McPherson out for his obsessive behavior, and I think appropriately so, it is a nice deflection at a crucial point. Well, let's talk a little bit about Diane Redfern. How about that? This is the exception that I mentioned early on in terms of things being tipped a little too early. This raises a flag for me. They try to toss it off like it's nothing. They try to sneak it in a little under the radar, I think. But how often do they give the full name of a model in a mock-up ad that you never see again? And say, yeah, she kind of looks like me or something like that. And such a unique and memorable name at the same time. Good old Diane Redfern. Well, now she's down in the morgue with no face. There is a whole lot to say about this character, I think. I think she gets ignored a lot, which is a shame. Because we never meet her. We don't know her story. We don't know her voice. We're only told uh, in third person. Specifically, we don't know what her crime is. Why is she punished this way? Is she a surrogate victim? She's set up to take the fall for a promiscuity that's hinted that she and Laura share? Because she was in a robe in Laura's apartment and presumably post-coital. Her main value to the story is essentially as a body, both as a model and then faceless murder victim. And I know it wasn't what the character intended when he said it, but it really is a sad and ironic epitaph for her when McPherson says, dames are always pulling a switch on you. That is a nice, dark bit of noir writing right there. So since now that we know it's not Laura that's dead, it's Diane Redfern, the attention can switch back to Laura as viable suspect. Which I think edges her back towards femme fatale a little bit. She never actually crosses over into that territory, but I think about the way she interacts with everyone and what sort of archetype she fits. She doesn't love any of these clods that way. She doesn't love love them. When you put that among all the other things that you see her do, is it more the case that what is significant about her is how she doesn't fit into the typical hierarchy of noir women? Because I enjoy that she has agency, it seems like, particularly sexually, though there still is that drive to punish her. It is 1944, after all. One thing I think that would have set her apart even more that I would have liked to have seen, I really wish Laura was included in this rotating cast of narrators. It's a big departure from the book. She actually does in the book. Yes, there are multiple voices in the book. This change, does that play to you like Preminger made that choice to benefit the story or specifically the character, or does it seem like something else? I think it was definitely Preminger's decision. He took out not just her voice, but also Mark's, because it just seemed like it would be too much to try to navigate within the language of the film. I think also that he made her into what Vera Kaspari thought was sort of the Hollywood version of a cute career girl taking out these motivations that she talked about, the maternal instinct, the satisfaction in consoling a troubled man, in her words. Yeah, I think it's the one thing that does a disservice to the character for me. Consciously or unconsciously, it ends up making Laura more something that the men in her life are projecting their peccadilloes onto rather than an equal. To be clear, I think she was both. A major function was to reflect the darkness and emptiness of her suitors, But she's also every bit as formidable and prone to desire as they are. Right. A human being. And she has 
finally something really interesting to say when she talks about, I will never be bound by something that I don't do of my own free will. But I think it won't surprise anybody that Laura, the story, was written for money. Vera Kaspari was a working girl as well, starting out at a really young age. She worked in tabloid journalism. She actually started out writing copy for scam correspondence courses, <laughs> which is so much like Los Tayos Amargos mm -hmm. that we covered last year. So I think she ended up putting the most of herself into Waldo. And I think that's <laughs> why that personality is so prominent in the story. And it gives the movie legs after all these years because she wasn't a murder mystery fan. She didn't like that the murderer, who is the most interesting character, generally has to remain on the periphery. So she wanted to do it differently. And I'm so glad she did. And I'm glad that Jean Tierney ended up in this. Vincent Price's daughter said this, his characterization of Jean Tierney. I think this is so beautiful. He felt that her beauty was both timeless and imperfect. I totally get that because I have that same exact feeling about Carol Lombard. For example, that scar, that slight scar she has on her face, that is the thing that makes her more beautiful than anything, I think. And Jean Tierney's overbite mm -hmm. is the thing that we will always remember. And I've read parts of her autobiography, weirdly enough, which was in a Sam's Club that I worked at <laughs> for about a week. It was in the break room for some reason. And her life was very dark. You can see the effects of what she lived through in a lot of popular fiction, including Agatha Christie, because she contracted German measles while pregnant, and her daughter had to be then institutionalized for the rest of her life. And Jean Tierney had her own mental illness battles. She called it fighting myself, which I think is a really beautiful way of putting it. So I think when she comes back in that door, when she says what she says, she manages to break Laura out of that dream world and give her something a little bit more interesting to be. Well, circumstances couldn't be more interesting than what she's walked back into here, I feel like. And especially when I start to think about her relationship and the way it moves with McPherson. You mentioned just a little bit ago about him going through her things. He's reading her letters. This is all strictly routine, right? Right. Well, not exactly, maybe. That slight smile that he gives when she says that she's decided not to marry Shelby, super professional. Yeah, that was one of the swoony moments for me. Yeah. He does a similar thing when he interrogates her later, basically, essentially saying, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> Let's maintain some distance here, buddy. It's very much in the tradition of that borderline obsessive behavior like vertigo, and then the land speed record for falling in love with a detective like someone to watch over me. I guess you can't blame a guy, maybe, if he's just getting nothing but one suitor after another talking about how wonderful she is. Uh, yeah, you can blame a guy, actually. I give him a little leeway, maybe, with all of this, because I feel like he is swept along by the story just like we are. I experience that feeling as we're going through this every time I watch it. That's a great quality for a character that's an audience surrogate. It really helps you become immersed in the film, but maybe not such a great quality for the detective investigating a murder case. We should be wary of this, because he's emblematic of a larger picture, and we've talked about it a little bit already. Beyond a certain point, the pattern becomes clear here. None of these guys are enamored of her for who she is, but rather how she manifests their fantastic ideal of womanhood. Well, Laura breaks her promise 
not to tell anyone that she's actually alive. And there is a rendezvous with Shelby. And then Shelby goes out to her country place to basically craft an alibi for her. Just a side note, her cabin here with a shotgun, it gives me major big sleep vibes. It reminds me of the house that Martha Vickers is taken to with the hidden camera in the statue. Absolutely. I always feel like something bad is about to happen when Dana Andrews and Vincent Price go to leave that cabin. Well, nothing does. There's a switcheroo, though, for everybody else. Mark has set a trap with the surprise of Laura being alive by gathering everyone back at her apartment. And Waldo collapses when he sees her. And why do you think Waldo is so shocked at her return? Is his response genuine? Do you think it's because he thought he had killed her? I do. I don't think that he could fake that in that way. It's such an interesting thing that you brought up earlier that Vera Kaspari did with this source material, and it carried over so well to the film. The murderer is the most interesting person, usually in these stories, and she did such a good job of making him nearly omnipresent without still tipping that hand too early. Because without a doubt, Waldo is the most interesting character in this whole thing. And so they do throw her this welcome home party. Is this really the best idea, shades of a woman under the influence here? Pretty terrible. And the whole thing is incredibly unpleasant too. We have music again. I think all to set up the whole basically record scratch that happens <laughs> when Mark accuses her of being the criminal. Before we get to that record scratch, though, I want to mention one of my favorite scenes in this whole thing. Judith Anderson's assessment of all this when she and Laura are alone together, how it's right on the money and brutally honest. That exchange is incredible. She harbors no illusions. Meanwhile, setting up, like you say, McPherson and his flair for the dramatic with his announcement. She says, you know, leave Shelby to me because we're the same. We're not nice people. And I don't think watching Judith Anderson do this, you could ever imagine her playing to the rafters. It's really very low-key and very menacing, too. And sad, most of all. Yeah. But this is such a great drawing room detective trick that McPherson pulls here. He makes his play in front of everyone. So you do know it's a little bit of a trick, probably. But everything's starting to boil over now. Telling Laura that he's going to help her get out of this position, Waldo dramatically and emphatically says, I have every weapon. Shelby takes one right in the bread basket. I love this party. <laughs> so McPherson has to follow through on this big play that he's making, and he takes Laura back to the station house. And he gives her, seriously, the bright light, the hot light treatment, to force her to tell the truth, not about the murder but about whether she is going to marry Shelby. And again, at 12, I don't think I got the creepiness of this whole design that is all about getting her to notice him instead. So now that he's had the opportunity to basically smell her hair for 20 minutes, he heads back <laughs> to Waldo's and the clock is off. It calls out to him and we should not underestimate its importance. It's another one of those cases where a well-made movie, nothing is shown to you by accident. The clock is one of the first things we see, and then its destroyed face is the last image, literally, before the credits roll. And it makes me think about all the things I love about the tradition of the clock as a literary symbol. It has so many possibilities. In this case, specifically that time is running out, possibly. But also on the flip side, if given enough time, a horrible crime can remain hidden within. 
It also obviously makes a pretty evocative surrogate for Diane Redfern's face when we stop and think about it. We're never allowed to see that, but the description of it suggests carnage, and then the damage done to the clock's face by Waldo's shotgun as applied to a human being would be something that you would never forget seeing. Back to the clock, though. As things go more digital, I really do miss traditional clock faces in film, in literature, because I think there's one aspect of it that can't be evoked by a digital clock. A digital clock can give you that same feeling of the pressure of time of facing a countdown, but a digital clock will never give you the same feeling of the sweep of time as those hands move and then all the implications of a cycle occurring and being completed. There's always the suggestion of a new day coming around with the traditional clock face that I don't get from its digital counterpart. We have so many clocks in this house, and all it reminds me of is the ticking away of my life. <laughs> Thanks. Before we moved in together, you never had clocks around like this? Never. Yeah, I have one in every room. I love clocks. I love maps. I love all measures of time and distance. So while Mark is checking his theory of the crime, Waldo is back in Laura's apartment trying to convince her that she's making yet another romantic mistake. And she finally confronts him with the truth of his own jealousy and patterns and ends their friendship. And this is when we start to get into goosebump territory for me, because this is not going to be the last word on the matter. Laura is undressing and listening to Waldo's broadcast. And it's just his voice on the radio that we hear. And then we see his shadow in the stairwell, a huge noir touch. And there's a swell of music and clock chimes. And he is pointing the gun that he had kept hidden in her clock at her, both barrels in the face, telling her that he is killing the best part of himself. Coming at this from a true crime perspective, there's a little bit of the family annihilator in that. It feels like that pattern where the patriarch of the family embarrassed by his financial shortcomings or whatever else may be happening, decides to kill the rest of the family, excluding himself to save them from the embarrassment. Well, he doesn't get away with it. No, he doesn't. But you're right. There is still that chill I get every time he appears in that doorway of her bedroom. And this viewing, it really made me realize it's not just the fact that he's there and he's so menacing. It's the summation of all of this expert camera work and exploration of space that's been happening the entire time. Priminger's camera, it roams and swirls all over the place, so that by the time we get to this finale, maybe without even realizing it, we've gone over every inch of these sets as if we're the detective too. We feel like we know these rooms intimately. So in addition to the jump scare of it, I think it's that aspect of things that makes it even more shocking. It makes it more of a violation. One thing that I found in doing research for this, something that I thought was really interesting, Priminger said that he would have liked to have filmed this in a single take, if possible. Can you imagine if there was a version of this that played like Hitchcock's rope? Beautiful, and it makes me want to see it on the stage. Yeah, as if I didn't like this enough already, I think that that presentation would cement this as an all-timer. I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. And not just as a gimmick. Some things I think would never work that way and they shouldn't even try it. But when I read that he said that about this, it immediately made sense in my head. There's this luxurious poetic quality that this has that just seems to lend itself to an unblinking gaze. Well, the destroyer becomes 
the destroyed and the cops burst in and kill Waldo in one of the best dramatic deaths <laughs> I've ever seen, clutching his breast. He milks it a little bit, maybe. He does. The final words, goodbye, Laura. Goodbye, my love. Yeah, laying one last guilt trip on her before he passes beyond the veil. So here's my final question for you. In this film that Roger Ebert called Style Over Sanity, is this a film noir or is it a noirification of a melodrama? And I've definitely got my answer and I want to hear yours. Well, the voiceover, that's something that we're used to just maybe not as often with the unreliable narrator. The detective bracing a web of suspects, that's common. They're just usually not all this privileged. We don't have a traditional femme fatale, but I'll trade that for this nice twist of her going from victim to suspect midstream. We've seen the hot lights of the interrogation room, but it's usually a sweaty Victor Mature and not Dana Andrews trying to rub up on Gene Tierney. So, yes, it is noir. It just takes the things that we're used to and twists them a little bit. What's your answer? I definitely vote noir. Our uptown is incredibly sordid, revealing that it's just as grimy as downtown because people are the same everywhere. I love that it's a criminal-centered noir because that's always a great variation. And also the twist that we don't have a private investigator. We have the official law, but the official law is repressing or expressing his desire in this perverted way with that interrogation. All for his own ends to get her to admit her passion for him. And ultimately, it's an exercise in fragile masculinity that becomes so aggressive that it murders. And that is pretty noir. Yeah, it doesn't get much darker than Waldo shooting someone in the face. This is a particularly savage, bitter, and vindictive way to conclude, I think, what is essentially a contest between two gay men for the attention of a woman. When we look at it for what it is, I don't even think it's uptown. And this maybe goes all the way back to Vera Kaspari's roots in journalism where she began. This isn't uptown. This is straight up tabloid material when you really look at what it is and all the angles involved. And we haven't touched on this a lot so far, but Waldo and Shelby, they're clearly coded as gay to you, right? Or at least bisexual in Shelby's case, gigolos can't be choosy, right? Yeah, it, I will take whomever is the richest, and it doesn't matter what she looks like, because I'm getting something else on the side, ultimately. And in keeping with production codes in those days, those both clearly stated and those just understood, quote-unquote, it goes as far as making sure that Waldo has to die. So it basically just makes me come back to this question. With all of these complications, does Waldo love her, or is he just obsessed with her, or is it both? Because I don't perceive his responses as sexual jealousy, right? You don't, obviously. Right, and I still think he is expressing himself most clearly through what he is making her out to be, and then in killing her, or trying to, it's annihilating him, and then he ultimately has to pay that price. That image has to be completely shattered. Textbook self-loather, in addition to wanting to own her and control her. I don't think I'm overstating the intent there. And then when you have Clifton Webb, Judith Anderson, and Vincent Price staring daggers at each other and flinging these catty remarks all around, you're practically daring the audience to draw this conclusion. A fun side note, Clifton Webb, he got this part after Priminger showed Daryl F. Zanuck his performance in a stage production of Blythe Spirit, 
which I only mentioned as a reason for me to get around to this story in which Webb, longtime confirmed bachelor, as you say, lived with his mother until she died at age 91. Noel Coward, when that happened, he said, it must be terrible to be orphaned at 71. Bitches. <laughs> all that being said, because of the subtext and the haze code and all the lines that we have to read between, we say it's noir. Can a case be made that Waldo is the closest thing that we're allowed to a femme fatale. I'm with you. Makes sense to me. So I think that wraps it all up as far as Laura is concerned. How about a recommendation? What do you have for us this time? I picked another one where the criminal is the most interesting character, I think. And that is Whirlpool from 1950, also directed by Otto Preminger, also starring Jean Tierney, this time with Jose Ferrer and Richard Conti. She plays a woman who seems to be living the perfect life with her psychiatrist husband, but after getting arrested for shoplifting, falls prey to a blackmail trap by a smooth-talking hypnotist. As I've said on the podcast before, Jose Ferrer knows what's up. Yeah, I love that guy. Oh, the best. This is incredibly engrossing. It's really tense because of his performance, and Gene Tierney's neurosis that just has no helpful outlet. It's also great fun, shockingly, but it unfortunately marked the kind of tail end of her career because she decided to retire from acting at a young age. And it was co-written by Ben Hecht, so you know there's a quality script and dialogue to work with. How about you? Well, I feel like mine is almost a mirror image of yours because I am keeping it in this same family as well. I'm returning to Priminger. I'm reuniting him with Andrews and Tierney. Got a script here from Ben Hecht, too. And I am choosing Where the Sidewalk Ends from 1950. I still haven't seen this one. Ooh, you are going to love this one. It is about a tough guy detective who carries this chip on his shoulder because his father was a career criminal. And he accidentally kills a suspect during questioning and proceeds to try to pin it on his gangster nemesis. Things obviously go awry when his boss thinks that his girlfriend is good for the murder. This is more my speed. It's Preminger, Andrews, and Tierney on the flip side of Laura. That's uptown. This is definitely downtown. You still have your flawed detective, but instead of romantically obsessed to the point of constantly writing her name on his notebook, he is just downright mean because of his daddy issues. It's gritty. It's notably a less sympathetic portrayal of a dangerous cop than we usually get to see. It's a great example of your noir protagonist or anti-hero spiraling more and more out of control and each bad decision accelerating to the inevitable bad end. Where Laura is glamorously perverse, this is just down and dirty and indisputably noir. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Whirlpool and Where the Sidewalk Ends. And that brings us to the end of episode 130. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks one more time to Matt and Travis for having you on the complete podcast again to wrap up your discussion of the Three Colors trilogy with the finale, Red. How has it been revisiting that trilogy with these fine fellows? 
completely surprising and totally illuminating. I loved going through that process. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We're on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon at the Fatal Films Podcast, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Andy Wolverton, Mike Scharf, Josh Hornbeck in the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast, Spencer Seams, Michael Cannon, Leanne Kubich, Mick Erdley, Phil DeCane, and Brian Sauer. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. Thanks to the nice anonymous person who recently left us a five-star rating on iTunes. We're very grateful for that. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>